Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the STAR Coalition. On this podcast series, we are going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Scott Fisher, psychiatrist and lead facilitator, trainer, and clinical program manager at Siegel Trials, to talk about the use of psychedelics as a treatment option for depression. Throughout his career, Dr. Fisher has focused on the psychological support and psychotherapy offered as a part of psychedelic drug treatments, with a particular emphasis on altered states of consciousness as mediators for healing. October is National Depression Awareness Month, and we would like to dedicate this episode to all who live with depression or who may have a loved one who is battling depression. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. We're so excited to have you on this month's episode honoring Depression Awareness Month. Hi, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Absolutely. So, Dr. Fisher, can you start by giving our listeners and myself an overall explanation of what depression is and how it affects an individual's brain? Yes, absolutely. So depression in sort of the psychiatric world as we currently define it is when you have a collection of symptoms such as feeling sad, not enjoying life, and including other symptoms like fatigue or problems with sleep or appetite, sometimes thoughts of suicide or suicidal behaviors. And if those happen for kind of a long enough period of time, we call that uh, major depression. So it's what we would say is a clinically defined diagnosis by certain criteria, and kind of how we define those criteria could potentially vary. We sort of have a standard we use in psychiatry, but it is based on, you know, people reporting what symptoms that they're feeling mostly and for how long they've been feeling them. In terms of what correlates that these symptoms and this sort of subjective experience has in the brain and the body, we have a lot of really helpful and useful facts, but we don't yet have enough of a complete picture of what's happening in the body or brain to be able to diagnose depression by, say, doing a brain scan or doing blood tests or doing anything like that. There's been a lot of work in trying to isolate those factors and be able to build that picture from, I guess, what you would call objective measurement, but we're, we're not yet able to do that. The science just hasn't gotten that far. The brain is really a very complicated organ, and it's very hard to get the sort of measurements that we need to be able to get the full explanation. We do know things that are tantalizing sort of pieces of information, such as there are certain neurotransmitters or chemicals in your brain that we know are important for regulation of mood, such as serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. There are also possible other hormonal causes of depression, immunological causes, there could be disruption of the emotional circuits of the brain, or the parts of the brain responsible for emotions, or other parts of the brain responsible for decision-making and judgment. So, you know, at this point, we don't really know if depression itself could be parsed out into many other sort of different diseases based on what parts of the body or brain aren't working that well. But right now, it's really diagnosis still made based on how a person is feeling. And I think it was really interesting, you know, you speaking about how dynamic and complex depression can be and, you know, that hopefully one day through research we will be able to find other ways to diagnose. So I wanted to ask, 
Can you speak about the current treatment options available for an individual who may be diagnosed with major depression? Absolutely. So one of the first-line treatment options for someone diagnosed with uh, major depression would be uh, psychotherapy or counseling with a psychologist or therapist, clinical social worker, managing family therapist, mental health counselor. There's a lot of psychiatrists. There's a lot of different people who do psychotherapy or talk therapy. That is still probably the first-line treatment recommended by most of our major organizations like the American Psychiatric Association, you know, the psychological associations, et cetera. And there's a lot of good evidence for it being able to help people and not always right away, but over time, we, you know, that people are able to build a lot of strength back by using psychotherapy. Other options that are commonly offered by doctors and psychiatrists would be uh, antidepressant medications. So these are used in some cases, not all cases, for people with depression. But particularly if people have more moderate or severe forms of depression, they are likely to be offered medications. And there's uh, very many different sorts of medications that could be offered for people. Now, we are also starting to build a bit more of trying to understand what sort of lifestyle interventions could help people either prevent depression or help them get through depression once it, if they do, they are unfortunate enough to suffer from it. And those might include things like developing an exercise regimen, making sure you're getting enough sleep, taking care of any sort of other medical conditions that can sometimes contribute to depression, eating a healthy diet that isn't causing too much inflammation or problems in the body. And we're still trying to understand how much each of these different factors might kind of weigh in on treating depression, but, but there's certainly things I think to be aware of that adjusting those things could be of some help to some people. And then, you know, the, one of the other things that we're really starting to look at is, you know, depression is, is just so common, you know, in our society. You know, somewhere around 10% of people in our society, some in the U.S., at some point suffer an episode of depression, which is really quite a lot of people. There's 40-something million people right now currently taking antidepressant medications, either for depression, anxiety, or something similar. And so we know that it's, it's also somewhat of a social disease. And so we're, we're really wanting people to help build their sense of, you know, community and their sense of connectedness with, you know, their families, with their communities, with their friends. That's something else that we're starting to try to incorporate more into treatment. Yeah, I, I like the holistic view you gave there. And, you know, mentioning that depression may show itself in people in very different ways to different degrees, which perfectly segues into my next question that I have for you. So do you see that there are different treatment options available for an individual who may have treatment-resistant depression as compared to a first-line treatment option for major depression? Yeah, there, there are absolutely different treatment options. And I guess first breaking down your question a little bit, semen-resistant depression is something that can be variably defined. But often in the context of, you know, the sort of clinical research that I do in the context of working with a psychiatrist, we're talking about medication treatment-resistant depression. And normally, I would say most often that, that means people have tried at least two different of the standard antidepressant medications for long enough a period of time, which is usually a, a period of maybe a, a couple months, at high enough a dose, a therapeutic dose, and that people did not get relief from their depression. So using that sort of definition, it's, it's actually quite common that people will try two or more medications and not get relief from their depression. And up to 30% or more of people uh, who have depression have treatment-resistant depression. So unfortunately, it is very common. And we're trying to gather more data and understanding about, you know, why this happens and who is at risk of it. 
and how to help people who suffer from it. There's also a related sort of type of depression where people maybe take medication, they're better for a little while, but then even though they're still taking the medication, they get depression back again, which is another sort of form of treatment resistance, even though they may have temporarily seem to have gotten better. So there's only actually two approved medications for treatment resistant depression. And so for anyone who has tried two medications but hasn't tried any form of psychotherapy or some kind of lifestyle sort of intervention that I recommended, we absolutely would want to, you know, incorporate that more sort of holistic type of approach, you know, making sure any other medical conditions are getting treated concurrently. But there's two approved medications right now. One is called esketamine and the other has been on the market for a while, a combination of fluoxetine and olanzapine. So there's really only two medication options that have really been robustly examined and been approved for treatment-resistant depression. I don't think I had any grasp of how common treatment-resistant depression was. So thank you for that explanation. You know, you hear that and you just think that it's a lot more complicated than that. And just two failed attempts is, is really interesting to me. So, again, thank you for that explanation. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who are suffering from treatment for this depression don't think, well, what, what's wrong with me? Why aren't these medications working? There's the impression that the medications are, are very often or always effective, and that just isn't the case. We, we know from really kind of more recent studies that antidepressants really don't help quite a lot of people. So that can be very frustrating for someone to try a medication that they think is very likely to help them or even try, you know, several of them and not get any response. But unfortunately, it is very common. So that's where we really want people to be prepared, you know, that that could happen and know that there there may be other options or ways of approaching their depression um, that could be more effective. Absolutely. I can only imagine, you know, the heartbreak behind the hope that you're going to have some relief. And even if it works for a few months, finding that it no longer is working for you, I can just imagine that that would be so disheartening. So I'm thankful we have providers like you who are so transparent with the possibility, you know, that it may not work. But if it doesn't, we can do something else and, you know, look at more holistic approaches. So are you able to provide insight on the psychological support model used in psychedelic clinical research trials for depression? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you for asking that. That's really my area of expertise. I did a certificate in psychedelic therapy and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies back in 2018. And I've now been a therapist or facilitator for over 30 different dosing sessions here at Siegel Trials. And so that's, that's really, I think, a passion of mine is because we, we know that the psychedelics, when given in sufficient dose, can cause a very altered state of consciousness where people can feel very different than they do in their normal day-to-day state of consciousness, and they can feel um, this perceptual distortions in terms of visual or auditory. They can feel different relationships with time or space. They can feel very wide range of emotions. There can be a lot of different sort of thoughts coming into people's minds, both insightful and helpful, you know, sort of insights, and also some as paranoid or, you know, really kind of outside of the realm of reality types of thoughts. And people can have what are called like mystical or spiritual types of experiences where they really feel a sense of oneness or connection or unity that is really not normally present in their day-to-day consciousness. So we pay close attention in general to these alter, alternate states of consciousness. And we know that they can, you know, be actually unsafe for someone if they're not being closely monitored and supported. So if someone gets you know, paranoid, they might make an unwise decision or otherwise be traumatized. 
by having, you know, sort of that really difficult sort of state of mind. And so we really emphasize, you know, people's physical, emotional, mental state during the psychedelic dosing sessions, both to, to kind of help, you know, reduce the risk of adverse events happening, serious adverse events, and also to potentially help boost the efficacy. And this is an area that needs a lot more research, but there's most of the experts in this area think that some form of psychological support for, during, and possibly also after the psychedelic dosing session may help boost the efficacy of the psychedelic drug itself. So to delve a little bit more into this, there's a term that goes way back to the 60s or 70s called the set and setting of psychedelic dosing. And so the set kind of refers to the mindset of the person taking the psychedelic, and the setting refers, of course, to where they're taking the psychedelic. So we think that the set and setting of when someone is taking a particular drug, whether it's, you know, psilocybin or LSD or what isn't technically a psychedelic, but is often used in a similar context, MDMA. And we think that the person's sort of mindset, how they're feeling going into it, what they're thinking about, kind of where they're at emotionally and psychologically can affect how their psychedelic dosing session might go. That's a hypothesis that hasn't been proven, but a lot of experience has shown that that can, that can have a big impact on the psychedelic dosing experience. And then the setting is also something we pay close attention to. So most of our, certainly here at Siegel, and I would say at, you know, a lot of this room, the other sites, we're starting to see that there is a lot of emphasis placed on it being very comfortable, sort of non-clinical feeling of a setting, if possible, where it feels maybe more like a living room and kind of keep the light flow and there aren't, like, loud noises or, you know, we think that that sort of comfortable, relaxed setting can help people experience the psychedelic dosing in a more productive and safer way. So those are two elements we pay attention to. One part of really helping people get into what we think could be an optimal mindset would be but basically all of our psychedelic studies and certainly any of the phase two, phase three studies that are you know more treatment-oriented have a preparation period with one to two highly trained therapists for each subject in our studies. And that preparation, probably the main factor that we're trying to build there is a sense of rapport or connection between the therapist and the subject so that that person can feel comfortable, as comfortable as possible being in the room with them, going into an alternate state of consciousness, knowing that, oh, these people know me, they're going to protect me. You know, just having usually at least several hours of kind of, you know, that time together uh, in preparation. We also get a chance to tell them about, you know, a little bit more about, okay, here's what's happening in the study. A lot of our studies have, you know, placebo control, or you could get a dose of, say, psilocybin or LSD or whatever it is. What might you experience, you know, which can be a very wide range of, of, of experiences that could happen, but, you know, kind of telling them ahead of time, you know, here's a range of things that could happen. And also helping them to be able to, say, navigate if they do uh, navigate mentally, that is, any sort of challenging sort of emotional or psychological states if they're feeling you know, sad or angry or paranoid, you know, we, we really try and help people really not try and run away from those experiences, but to feel them uh, and really try to understand them. And so we, we encourage people to use mantras like trust, let go, be open, accept and allow, and really kind of let that whole sort of psychedelic experience happen without feeling like something has to change or has to stop during their dosing. And so with that sort of preparation, we find that many people are able to navigate the dosing sessions and the treatment sessions, you know, kind of productively with a sense of what could happen and how to kind of 
position themselves, you know, emotionally if they do experience difficult things. Now, most people do not have really negative experiences. Uh, that's actually pretty uncommon in our research trials. So the sort of bad trip certainly happens in studies and happens a lot in the community. But we think with our setting setting, we likely are reducing the likelihood of someone having a bad trip. It still happens, still does happen. But, you know, there, there's, there's a wide range of experiences and most people um, that we see usually uh, have at least somewhat positive experience in our studies. And we've had, you know, definitely some people, but only a handful of people I think who really regret it, you know, at all entering into the study based on the ones we've done so far. Absolutely. And, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about this in the first place is I think there's such a stigma against psychedelics in the research world. And I think, you know, you talked about the bad trips, and that is a, obviously a, a large factor within the stigma. But your set and your setting model is really intriguing to me. And just from working with and knowing the staff at people, they're all so warm. And I can only imagine, I, I can't even begin to fathom the amount of hours and effort and training that your staff has to be able to prepare for something like that. It's just incredible to know, you know, that you guys are so dedicated to your art. So I want to talk about the Center for Psychedelic Research that Siegel has that was founded in 2020. Since you guys opened that, have you seen an interest in psychedelics as a treatment option for depression? Has that interest increased at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have any specific metrics I could give you, but I can certainly say that in general, you know, over the years, uh, I've, I've seen a big interest in psychedelics for treating depression as, as, as well as a variety of other mental health problems, anxiety, substance use disorders, that's uh, just in OCD, eating disorders. So there's a lot of different sort of diagnoses that are that we're currently investigating at, here at Siegel or elsewhere in the world or, you know, these different diagnoses using different psychedelics. So I think that, you know, and especially since I did my training back in 2018, moving into 2020, we've started to see more attention in kind of the popular press. There have been some documentaries that have gone up on some of the streaming services. There have been books published, more and more see articles or little um, things on the, the news. So there's definitely been a big interest and uptick in interest in psychedelics, just in general, I think, in our society, but certainly as treatment option for depression and other sort of diagnoses. Which is, is, I think, interesting to see in the clinical research sort of setting because very often, you know, the drugs that are being investigated in clinical research, you, they don't necessarily, people don't hear about them until usually they're already through a lot of their, you know, their, their, their phase one, two, and three studies. Um, so there usually is a hype surrounding um, what's being investigated in clinical trials. So that's been something that we definitely have to think about and address, knowing that there is this potential kind of like expectancy effect about being in a psychedelic trial and getting a psychedelic and really hope to get it versus some of the other studies that can still be there, absolutely, but since there's the same sort of interest in the popular press or the same sort of high in psychedelics, that is kind of a... A distinguishing difference we see sometimes in doing this type of research. And can you speak a little bit to, as a provider, at what point when you're treating an individual do you recommend that they investigate clinical research as a treatment option? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I work specifically only in research, so uh, you know, as a provider, I, I don't 
tweet anyone right now, say, except within the context of the research that we're doing? I would say the answer to that question is that could really happen at any point, you know, in a person's treatment, and it depends on things like what is the diagnosis. So, for instance, someone with treatment-resistant depression, you know, they can't enter one of our treatment-resistant depression studies until they've tried at least two antidepressants at a sufficient dose for a long amount of time. So for that person, they could, you know, as soon as they meet the criteria, they could enter it, although a lot of people might want to try a third medication and they might want to try psychotherapy. So, I mean, in general, going into clinical research, I think many people, especially with the psychedelics, come into it thinking, you know, this is something that could really help me with my problem, and that's one of their main motivating factors. But we also really try to emphasize to people that this is, you know, scientific research we're doing, and the main purpose of the study is to examine whether, say, psilocybin is helpful for depression in the first place with, you know, the, based on the different criteria that can go into entering into one of the studies. So I think it really depends a lot on when specific individuals become interested in pursuing psychedelics as a treatment option, knowing that because a lot of these psychedelics are on Schedule 1, they can't necessarily go to just a therapist or go to a doctor and say, I want to be prescribed psilocybin for depression or, or even access, you know, those drugs easily uh, in another sort of form. So, you know, sometimes participating in clinical research can be one of the main ways people can access it in a safe way where we know kind of exactly what we're giving, you know, someone in terms of the purity of the drug and things along those lines. So, yeah, I think, I think you know, really can happen at any point that someone becomes interested in trying a psychedelic and contributing to, you know, what we think is a really important line of research in terms of the mental health problems that we're having in our society right now. Yeah, and I, I loved how you touched on access because that really, clinical research does give individuals access to medications that they may not ever have the opportunity to try, and it could be, you know, the, the one that happens to work for them. And I know Siegel does a lot of work ensuring that research volunteers feel very supported within their journey. And a part of that is the family member aspect. So if a family member was concerned about a loved one enrolling in a psychedelic research trial, what would you say to them? Yeah, that, that happens quite a lot or, or we'll have even, you know, the, the specific person interested in, you know, enrolling in the study, they might be very intrigued and interested, but also concerned about being in a psychedelic research trial. So we kind of view it as the norm and that it's probably very healthy for people and for the family members to come in with maybe interest and intrigue and participate in the study and potentially getting a psychedelic as part of the study, but also having concerns because, you know, these are very powerful drugs in some instances to take and can cause very altered states of consciousness that, especially when just kind of taken recreationally or in the community, can be really dangerous. Of course, you know, as, as a part of any clinical research trial, we have a very lengthy screening and baseline process looking at, you know, medical and psychiatric sort of factors into whether someone meets the criteria to be enrolled, whether there are certain unsafe elements of their past or their current conditions that might not make them a suitable candidate for being in a research study. So the, the screen evaluations are quite lengthy. And so we think that, you know, based on the eligibility criteria that we're using, which, you know, like more with like a lot of studies, it's very numerous, 40 to 50 different sort of, you know, criteria often go into, you know, someone being eligible to move forward in the study. We, we think that we're really reducing the, the safety risks, but of course, as you know, 
you and probably a lot of listeners know that a lot of these clinical research studies are looking at effectiveness, but also they're continuing to look at safety. So, you know, that is something where we're still trying to learn more and that these studies are really trying to help understand what could be the risk if these are made available to society as, you know, uh, FDA-approved drugs for depression or other sort of conditions. So in general, like I would say, concerns are, are absolutely normal and healthy. And if someone is, you know, despite those concerns, still interested in entry, absolutely come prepared to ask difficult questions at our research site, and I'm sure at a lot of other research sites. We're used to those questions and really just want to help people make their own best decision and inform consent about whether they should participate or whether maybe a study like this isn't the right option for them because it's, it's not for everyone. Yeah, thank you for the insight. And, you know, Siegel is such a, a leader in this space. And so I wanted to ask a lot of sites maybe having some curiosities about what it takes. And obviously, just from this short episode, we heard how much preparation your staff has to go through. You know, you do have to have dedicated spaces so that they are in a warm and homey setting. So can can you speak to to that side of it? What would you say to other sites who may be considering getting involved with psychedelic research trials? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and my answer is going to be in no way a comprehensive sort of list because there's really quite a. I mean, obviously, doing any sort of clinical research is complicated. There's a lot to take into consideration, but then when you add the psychedelic factor into it, there are many additional considerations that come into play. Like you mentioned, you know, having a dosing room that is maybe not doesn't feel like a typical clinic room. You know, it has like a comfortable counter divan that people can lie at and some comfortable chairs and some low lighting. Right now we have we have, we have several dosing rooms and we had to build all those out because there was never a previous need to have a comfortable living room like setting in any of our other sorts of clinical trials. But it's absolutely essential for these sorts of psychedelic studies that we're doing. So that's an additional, you know, time and cost to, to build that out and find a space to do that. Many of the psychedelics are still on the DEA Schedule 1 list of controlled substances, which you certainly can do research on, but there's often, you know, certain national, state, and local sort of regulatory bodies that really, we have a whole regulatory team that has now become, you know, absolute experts in doing, you know, the sort of paperwork and liaison with the DEA that is necessary, but it's a lot of work to get the Schedule 1 to get, you know, even for each additional, you know, compound that we might want to study, you have to go back to the DEA, go back to the state, et cetera, and get additional approvals. So that, that part makes it very lengthy. And then finally, you definitely need at least some staff that has a background in some of the psychedelic sort of training, or, you know, it's obviously not going to be possible to have everyone on your staff have done previous sort of psychedelic sort of training to work because this is such a new area. But, you know, my position was really important because I had done that previous, you know, training, like I mentioned in 2018, and, you know, had done quite a lot of, you know, work getting ready to, to be able to work in a position like this. So having, you know, therapists on staff with a previous background, I mean, all the, all the studies have their own specific, you know, training for the therapists and the facilitators working on dosing sessions. And some of those trainings are quite good, but oftentimes not always totally adequate to really get the level of, you know, expertise and experience necessary to really be able to, I think, successfully deliver the sort of psychological support that we think is, is likely to be very helpful as part of, of these studies. And, and like I said, because of all the hype that there often is in the community, you know, 
some people were coming into these studies and they've, you know, watched all the YouTubes and they've read the articles and they, they often will know quite a lot already. So, you know, if, if you haven't already previously done kind of your own research and understanding and they're going to kind of be asking you these questions and you don't know what they're talking about, you might may not be inspiring much confidence that, you know, you're the right person to be helping them, you know, with their, with their potential psychedelic treatment. So, yeah, I think, you know, kind of the, the, the space, the regulatory uh, considerations, the staffing, those are three areas that I think really need to be paid close attention to if sites are thinking of getting involved in this type of research. Yeah, thank you for the insight there. And I, I'm so thankful that the Florida community has legal trials to educate and inform them and give them this treatment option. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Fisher. On behalf of myself and the STAR Coalition, we really appreciate your time and your expertise on this hot topic, especially for this month. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mallory. This has been a real pleasure and really happy to, to be able to, to talk about these important subjects. So thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. So if anyone listening, you or someone you know may be living with depression, we encourage you to visit the links in our show notes, specifically DBSA and some other partners that we have will be in there. If you're interested in learning more about Siegel Trials and their current research studies, please visit SiegelTrials.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.